Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, a couple weeks ago, the U.S. government passed the infrastructure bill, $1.2 trillion investment, and there is another $2 trillion bill pending the Build Back Better uh, bill. So a lot of significant focus and investment on infrastructure in the United States uh, warranted. I think, because of the changing conditions. Climate change is presenting new pet challenges to infrastructure all well, around People the are worried that Santa's not going to be able to get the, the toys for all the boys and girls this Tra- year. Transportation infrastructure. We're going to focus today on the future of ports and infrastructure with a thought leader from, the, uh, from Silicon Valley in San Francisco, uh, Gordon Feller. He is a journalist. He is an executive advisor to companies and governments. He is an NGO advisor and sits on the board of several. Uh, a widely uh, read journalist, uh, co-founder of the Meeting of the Minds organization, which we're going to find out about. It's been around for about 20 years or more. And uh, take a take a step back and talk about ports and infrastructure in our changing climate, I think, is the implication of the show today. Absolutely. And, you know... The, the Arctic is just so important. What's going on right now, we've, we've covered it before we did a show, uh, goodness, it was probably about a year ago now, yeah. uh, with the Arctic Institute, and we learned a little bit. We, we started to crack the egg on all of the implications about what the changing Arctic is doing. It is changing. Climate yeah. change, it means less ice, means that the sea lanes are open, means that pieces of waterways and land that beforehand was regarded as maybe not being particularly valuable now has potentially tremendous uh, value to it in the form of shipping lanes and maybe even other things too. So we're going to talk today with, I think, kind of a visionary, someone who looks way out, sees the the big picture, and we're going to talk about how this changing Arctic could affect the world, really, affect the way we live our lives, affect our economies, affect the geopolitics, uh, and what that might look yeah. like in the future, because it's happening, whether we like it or not. So it's going to be a great show, Peter. I think it will, and I'm, I'm glad uh, glad to get Gordon Feller onto the show, and uh, look forward to talking to Gordon after these messages. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So, Gordon Feller, let's learn a little bit about you right off the bat. First of all, incredible resume, ladies and gentlemen. Check him out on LinkedIn. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about your origin and how you came to be the executive advisor and kind of top-level uh, thinker and helper of top-level thinkers that you are? Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for asking that question. An ancient history lesson, I guess, in this case, since I'm a lot older than the two of you. Um, I started working in this field as um, a high school student, actually, in public public school in New York City, 
and was appointed the UN representative for an international youth and student organization based in Europe. So I got a chance to work at UN headquarters for a couple of years before starting college and then continued that during my years at Columbia University, both undergraduate and graduate school. But when I finished up in graduate school, I transitioned to Silicon Valley and that was 1983. So that was before I think either one of you was probably born. Um, <laughs> I'm older than many, that. I, I have to admit to you, uh, Gordon. All right, yes. all right. I, see, I see gray hair, but I thought yeah. that was just stress. Thank you. <laughs> it may well be. <laughs> but, uh, the life of a podcast. I graduated um, from, uh, let's see, I, got, I started law school in 83. All right. Yeah. So yeah. You're, 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 yeah. you're old enough. Yeah, I'm old um, enough. Tyler's so, a kid, though. I wasn't born yet. <laughs> Tyler is just a tyke. That's right. Um, so, so basically, I I took my mandate, uh, not anybody appointing me, but me me a self appointed mandate to bring the concerns about uh, the global environment and the global trade system to Silicon Valley, working for big tech companies like Cisco and IBM and others, but uh, really always with a focus on helping those companies and the associations that they support and are part of, helping them to focus on doing the right thing on the global stage hmm. because they were driving the globalization of the American economy. They were driving the upgrade and uh, systemization of global trade flows. And so I was, I was interested in making sure that that was not just economically prosperous for all the actors in that system, but environmentally responsible. Hmm. And that's how I got to be so concerned about what was happening in the Arctic um, and more broadly what was happening around climate change. So about 25 years ago, the president of the World Bank wanted to initiate a program uh, to look at the intersection of global environmental sustainability, global transport, and cities, which are the hosts of most of the world's great ports. And that uh, initiative called Urban Age resulted in ultimately the creation of a nonprofit meeting of the minds. Hmm. So that nonprofit is supported by big corporates like Cisco and Verizon and AT&T and JP Morgan Chase, but also major governments, um, the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, the state of Ohio, state of Arizona, major universities, as well as um, significant foundation uh, organizations, philanthropies like Ford Foundation, Rockefeller, and so on. So that consortium of sponsors helps Meeting of the Minds do what I've been very focused on, which is building bridges between corporate leaders in the private sector, government leaders in the public sector, whether they're elected or appointed, and the nonprofit leaders who run foundations and universities and think tanks mm. to try and get them to talk with each other about the common agenda, which is to bring new innovation, technology innovation, and other kind of innovation to solve these problems, whether it's making trade flows smoother and less environmentally destructive or making cities more successful or any of the other big challenges that Meeting of the Minds is, is looking at. And I'd encourage listeners to go to meetingoftheminds.org to look at their programming. But they're one of those organizations that I point to as a thought leader and they, they've done really well. But my own work is to try to bring new insights to my own consulting clients in government and in industry 
but also to bring them to the nonprofits that I'm volunteering with uh, as a board member and advisor to their executive teams. So I try to take all of those insights that I'm learning in that work and report about it in the writing that I do and the magazine articles in The Economist or the Financial Times or any of the others. It's an amazing agenda. And starting in 1983, with a focus on global trade and globalization, coming out of this experience in your high school years uh, uh, at the United Nations must be uh, give you it. You were an early adopter, I think it very, sounds like. Very early, yeah. Uh, to this global trade, uh, globalization trend and environmental sustainability. I have a couple of questions. Um, can you tell us what, what problems uh, have uh, been the focus of your uh, interaction with in the public and the private sector when it comes to globalization and environmental sustainability. What is the concern that you are hoping to help these people understand better and respond to better? Yeah, great question. And that's right, right at the heart of what I'm concerned about is getting those leaders who run these organizations, globe-girdling multinational corporations, uh, high-impact high government agencies, uh, philanthropies who have, you know, substantial resources in their endowment. I'm trying in my work to get them to focus on emerging opportunities to address big, hairy challenges that have been, um, what would I say, not ignored, but not addressed in a, in a highly effective way. So we've been talking about climate change for 30 plus years, but the responses to climate change, for example, haven't been as effective as they should have been and could have been. And now we're dealing with the consequences of climate change coming and smacking us right in the head in the last year of extreme weather events. So I, I'm, I'm particularly focused on enabling leaders to harness the power of their organizations to respond more effectively to the big global challenges that are now hitting us on a planetary scale with climate change being the big the big one and making sure that they bring not just their resources and their smarts but that they work collaboratively with others whether they're other corporates or other governments or other philanthropies so in that context could you tell us about who the players are in the arctic and and maybe why the arctic in your mind is an interesting test bed in looking at how climate change overlays very specifically with global trade. It's a good question about the players because it's a complicated um, stage that's been set for us all on the Arctic stage. So there are eight countries, Canada, Denmark, which includes Greenland, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Sweden, the US who have actual Arctic territory. And there are five that have actual coastline on the Arctic. That's Canada, Denmark slash Greenland, Norway, Russia, US. But um, the reality is that China, which certainly covets Arctic shipping routes and the potential mineral resources and oil and gas, have been attempting uh, very concertedly to legitimize their potential future, future Arctic claims by describing themselves as a near Arctic power, which somehow they think is going to convey something to the world. Um, so of those powers, of those competitors, 
Russia has the most expansive Arctic territories of any of these countries. And it's by far uh, the most capable of the Arctic competitors because the Kremlin views the Arctic as critical to its national defense, national security. Uh, as a result, the country is very actively preparing military forces to operate there. But at the same time, they're working to ensure that they can exploit the untapped natural resources of the region. So they're hoping to control enough of the Arctic resources, particularly the energy resources, to ensure uh, you know, that they have some national economic benefits because it's a desperately, um, what, what would I say, a badly run and poor economy, uh, which happens to stretch over a sixth of the world's landmass. And they want to control all of the shipping near its coastline to continue to control it and to maintain their own military power there so they can deter any aggressors from crossing the Arctic. So that's why they have all of this extensive Arctic capability and why they're extending their territorial claims to increase that. That whole approach that the Russians have taken has been loudly protested by a lot of other countries, by the way, who see it as a violation of the Law of the Sea Treaty. Anyway, so that's the, that's the national actors, right? Then you have the corporate actors, all of the big oil and gas majors, Shell, ExxonMobil, Chevron, etc., cetera, um, and especially the Norwegian companies. Uh, but you know, their state-owned oil company uh, is the Equinor is Equinor. the big player. Yeah. And then you have all of the global shipping companies, some of which are based in the Arctic, like Maersk. Um, and then you have all of those indigenous communities that they believe are not represented by their national governments who actually live in these places and have for thousands of years and who are being adversely affected by everything that the governments and the corporates are doing. Um, and the indigenous communities is, are not just the people of Alaska, uh, but they're all of the people, uh, the, native, the native communities in all of those countries that I've mentioned who are dealing with the reality of a sinking landmass, sinking uh, um, tundra, sinking, um, not just sinking land, but uh, melting ice and the change in the ecosystem that's resulting in changes in uh, both fish and bird life, as well as in the mammals that they depend upon. So you've got all of those actors and then around all of them, around the governments and the corporates and the indigenous communities who are not represented well by their governments, you have the fourth, the, the fourth category, who are the non-governmental organizations that are trying in each of their different ways to have an impact on the future of the Arctic, some of which are advocating for shutting all mineral, uh, oil and gas extraction activities down, some of whom are advocating for expansion of that. So you have a broad cross-section you could say from the left to the right and in the center, as well as off of that traditional political spectrum entirely. So it's a very rich uh, ecosystem of different players who have different points of view and getting them to talk to each other is a big, um, pardon my French, shit show. Yeah. Uh, because you've got essentially lots of people who don't want to talk to each other and who believe the other guy is their arch enemy. So as an observer and a participant in, in the dialogue uh, surrounding climate issues, environmental sustainability, infrastructure, when you look at this pantheon of actors from the corporate government, indigenous communities, NGOs, uh, are you seeing a formative uh, management structure that gives you confidence about 
how exploitation of this region uh, might occur, or is the, uh, uh, the the conversation that you're witnessing concerning? How, how, are you an optimist about our capacity to manage this region as it becomes more accessible? If I look at the UN system, or the World Bank, or the Arctic Council, which is the leading intergovernmental forum that promotes cooperation, um, bringing together the countries that I listed, um, Canada, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Sweden, US. It's based in Norway. Um, it was founded in Canada in the, in the 90s. Um, but the bottom line is that all of those global forums, UN agencies like UN Environment Program, World Bank, Arctic Council are not quite stillborn babies, but they're very handicapped by the fact that the nation states who dominate the, the stage that I laid out for you in listing all the actors, the nation states are not willing to deed or secede or grant any of their sovereignty, even a small smidgen of their sovereignty, their national sovereignty that they hold so dear. They're not willing to grant any of that to any of these international agencies to help facilitate multilateral action. So wow. as a as a fact of life, I'm pessimistic about the prospects for getting effective response to the new reality in the Arctic from those organizations. Now, the eight Arctic states that are permanent members of the Arctic Council have opened up the conversation to indigenous communities, to corporates, to NGOs. The World Bank is working with corporates and NGOs. The UN system is working with corporates and NGOs. So there is trilateral effort happening. But the reality is that even when you put the triangle together of corporate plus government plus NGO and you get them talking to each other, the leadership at the center of that triangle that can pull them together to work effectively together to respond effectively in, in, in collaboration is not yet there. Now, maybe with the melting of the ice and with the dramatic changes in the ecosystem of the Arctic um, and the rising sea levels and the significant threats to human settlements and to biological systems, maybe that's going to stimulate. And, you know, the only upside to a crisis is the potential for a better response than we had before. And that response hopefully is adequate to address the crisis. There are great ideas out there about what we can do. We're not lacking in great ideas. The reality is the investment, political capital investment, financial capital investment that's required to activate and make those ideas real is bigger than the political will we have right now to get that uh, happening. And you know, the Chinese have the potential as the wannabes who want to participate in this, um, you know, in this region and are calling themselves a near Arctic uh, power, um, you know, maybe the Chinese uh, will step up. Um, many, many non-Arctic Arctic countries have been admitted as members or observers at the Arctic Council, um, and China is one of them. Japan's another. South Korea, the UK, uh, the Netherlands. But the the fact is that. I happen to put a lot of my hope into the European Union. Among all the players who are now on the stage, the US government and the European Union, both the members of the European Union who are active in the Arctic, as well as the European Union as a commission sitting in Brussels with billions of dollars at their, at their disposal. 
I happen to think that the, the, the advice that those leaders have taken and acted on in the European Union is some of the best. And that's why you have a lot of these um, um, member or observers at the Arctic Council coming from the EU. So I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic that the current configuration can do the job, but I'm optimistic that we can get some planetary action, planetary agreements, planetary investments. And I think the European Union is going to be critical to that. I hope they can convince the Chinese to play a positive role. Uh, but I don't believe the Russians are going to play any positive role whatsoever. And, um, you know, that's not just because of Putin. I think it's because of other forces that are working in inside Russia's government and corporate worlds, greed being the primary one. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a, a clusterfuck, <laughs> I think would be the term of art. But, um, yep. you know, one of the things, Gordon, that I would like, to, I would love to get your kind of say, say we were to give it a whirl and try to govern this space in a responsible way, what would be some of the low hanging fruit, some of the, the easiest things to coalesce around and, and try to manage? Well, the law of the sea treaty provides a lot of things, uh, that UN convention was written very, very well and led on the U S side by Elliot Richardson, um, during his the prime of his life, and uh, the U.S. never ratified it. So right. the lowest hanging fruit would be for Biden to put some political capital on the table, go to Capitol Hill, and say, you know, we have a lot of priorities in this country, and one of them should be to save the oceans, because so much of the U.S. economy depends on the health of the oceans and the health of the Arctic. Unbeknownst to most Americans, you know, the it's not just coastal economies that depend on the oceans. And um, he could he could put some political capital behind making that happen and educate Americans in the process about how intertwined our economies are in the United States in all 50 states and not just in uh, the two, you know, uh, the two economies, Hawaii and the Arctic, that that depend on the oceans more than perhaps many of the other economies in the United States. But the fact is, uh, we've never ratified it. We could do that, and that would activate a whole set of things in the Law of the Sea Treaty that make it possible for good uh, good actions to flow from it. So that's one of the fundamentals. It's low-hanging fruit. There's a bunch of others working with UN agencies that have some initiatives that are uh, that are underutilized at the UN Environment Program, for instance, at UN Habitat, which is the agency of the UN system that focuses on uh, cities and human settlements. Um, but again, you know, the U.S. engagement with the world is sort of on again, off again. It was off again during Trump. Yeah. It's on again during Biden-Harris, but uh, it's not fully activated because the fights internal and domestic in the United States have taken up most of the mind share in the White House and in the Congress. Uh, but now with the infrastructure bill, you've got 70 plus billion dollars focused on on ports. And uh, that's that's a big deal. And we ought to spend a few minutes you know, dissecting what the $70 billion of that infrastructure bill is going to go towards. But maybe maybe you don't want to go there yet in our yeah, conversation. I, 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 don't know. I, I absolutely want to talk about the infrastructure bill and the and and particularly uh, this $70 billion uh, upcoming investment in ports. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask if before we leave. I'm sorry, seven, seven, 17. 17. I'm 17. sorry. Yeah, 17. Uh, yeah. uh, I wanted to ask, is it clear in in your work, or can you discern uh, the U.S. agenda above the Arctic Circle? Is is the U.S. agenda clear and rational to you as a 
participant in this international conversation? Or what can you say about where the United States is with regard to Arctic resources, access, infrastructure, competition? Yeah, there is no integrated national strategy, and that's a big gap, and that's one of those low-hanging fruit. It wouldn't take a lot for the administration to pull together all the agencies that each have different strategies, Department of Interior, Department of Energy, Department of Commerce, Department of Transportation, Department of Defense. Those are the big players uh, because, of course, the DOD, with the largest sum of resources of the total federal budget, um, wants to expand its footprint in the Arctic and already has some uh, Department of Commerce through NOAA and Coast Guard. You know, you have a whole slew of different agencies working in the Arctic or wanting to expand the U.S. Uh, engagement with the Arctic, but there's not a lot of interagency, interorganizational collaboration at the federal level that there ought to be. The way that, for instance, we have around the interagency strategies that are emerging around climate. So it's not a big leap to go from the interagency strategy that the Biden-Harris team put together around climate, where every agency is now engaged in an all-of-government approach, it's not a big deal to then extend that to an interagency approach, climate-driven, in the Arctic that's also looking at the economic opportunities and obstacles that climate change is bringing to the Arctic. Um, so $17 billion is a driver to get at least those agencies that are interested in transport maritime transport together. So that's supposed to improve infrastructure at coastal ports, at inland ports and waterways, and at land ports of entry along the border. And they're, they're aiming at both near-term and long-term investments. And they're particularly interested in supply chain resiliency in the administration. And they've said that that's how they want to focus the $17 billion. So, um, you know, job creation and competing with uh, economic competitors, particularly China, is going to be a big part of how that money gets spent, not just in the top 50 busiest ports in, in you know, in the U.S., um, uh, but a lot of other places that need that and want that, um, looking beyond container traffic flows to landside infrastructure as well. So... Uh, the reason that I, I bring up the $17 billion is it tends to focus the mind when there's a lot of money on the table. And so what's happened now is the American Association of Port Authorities and other lobbyist groups in Washington are all doing you know, their thing down their particular, what would I call it, rabbit hole to focus on their agenda without thinking about the broader agenda that we need to address in the Arctic. And um, that's, you know, that's to our own detriment. So we've got an opportunity before that money gets spent out. It's the administration is working hard to gear up to put out the RFPs and the RFQs around particular contracts. And um, we have, you know, now a moment where your listeners and the organizations that they work with can get their voices heard because that money in the pipeline isn't spent yet. Uh, but some months from now, they will start spending it, uh, particularly because the administration thinks that it has to be spent out quickly to have the desired positive economic impact while the country is still recovering from COVID. Yeah, and I would just love to get your two cents on that, because to me, what I'm in, what I'm picking up is that, hey, listen, if we if we 
do the same thing we've always done with port spending. And I realize that there's more to it. There's a lot that we cover here on ASPN about modernizing ports and greening them up, uh, bringing more electrification and whatnot into the facilities. That's all hugely uh, advanced uh, infrastructure stuff that that involves a lot more than just what you see at a coastal port facility or even the ships that are bringing things back and forth. But what you're talking about is that we are now, this system, the supply chain system is, is a global apparatus. And if we are just looking at quote unquote ports and kind of the domestic side of affairs that we really can't control things, is that, is that a bit of what you are saying? We can't on a unilateral basis. So because of the nature of the Arctic being what it is, shared by all those countries, used by all those companies, uh, occupied by all of those in different indigenous communities, um, you, you, there is no way that if the federal government said we are going to make a huge difference and put resources and political capital and political will behind it, that doing it on a solo basis won't have the desired effect. It has to be multilateral. It has to be collaborative. It has to be a planetary response because the Arctic is changing so rapidly and it's affecting the whole global system, the whole global weather system, the whole global transportation system, and the whole global food system. Mm -hmm. So the, the result of that is if we don't have a planetary approach, um, and you know the United States is still the largest economy in the world, it's still the largest political actor on the global stage, we have the largest and most powerful military, um, you know, China would like to be number one, but it's not. Uh, Russia would like to compete in military terms, but they can't uh, as an equal. The bottom line is that we are going to make waves, but we are not going to be the tidal wave that uh, changes the whole dynamic on our own. And that's why the collaborative approach, the multilateral approach that the Biden administration has taken is a breath of fresh air after four years of unilateralism. But it's not the same as actual effective action to say we want to do multilateral is good. And now the question is, when do we get there? Because, for instance, yesterday, when Biden and Putin had their video conference, I'm willing to bet a lot of money that the Arctic did not come up because mm. it was dominated by Ukraine. Right. Um, now, there will be a lot of other discussions that flow out of that bilateral tete-a-tete uh, -tete that they had. And hopefully, you know, Putin got the message that invading Ukraine again is not in his best interest. But the bottom line is we have a lot of areas of potential collaboration with the Russians, climate and the Arctic being primary. And we're not we're not really engaged because, you know, Putin Putin has decided that he needs to make the United States as the, the principal enemy to galvanize his own people around the Putin administration. Um, and that's that's a that's a real shame. You know, the, it, the, the challenges of uh, a, an effective multilateral uh, approach in the Arctic seem incredibly uh, uh, difficult. I, would, I don't know if we want to say insurmountable, but the geopolitical relationships involved here are very, very complex. And it is, it, is it fair to say that this region uh, holds great economic potential uh, for those who wish to exploit the resources there? And what comes to mind for me is is uh, not only shipping routes and the and the efficiency of shorter routes and how it can affect climate uh, uh, global trade, but also the fisheries and the oil and gas. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about the economic stakes involved in the Arctic and how the interests of the players uh, relate to the potential? 
Yeah, oh my God, it's it's so huge. Um, just on the oil and gas alone, the potential uh, to drill, uh, which will mostly be, you know, negative environmental impacts. I'm I'm sorry to say, but but if you're looking at it from the standpoint of an oil and gas company who wants to deliver um, new resources to their customers, um, you have a huge reservoir uh, of oil and gas that could be tapped and I hope won't be tapped, but, um, you know, these LNG export facilities that are now being built in the Arctic, uh, by primarily the Russians and, uh, Novatech, the company who's taken the lead on uh, some of those projects says that, you know, Japan and China might participate, uh, the European governments have said they won't because of the environmental impacts. Um, and that's an, another instance where I think the Europeans are way ahead of everybody else. Uh, but, you know, the, the LNG terminal, which is called Arctic 2, uh, that's under construction um, in the Gidan Peninsula and Arctic 1, which is in the Yamal Peninsula. You know, they're two huge examples uh, where LNG, you know, is, is a big focus of massive multi-billion dollar investment. That's $21 billion just for the Arctic LNG 2 facility that Novatech is building. So you have, and, and that's because we're talking, you know, potentially hundreds of billions of dollars of oil and gas that can be tapped in the region if the world doesn't get its act together and make a, a you know, transition away from uh, traditional oil and gas reserves to new energy, cleaner energy, renewable energy sources. Um, and that's, of course, something the administration in, in, you know, is doing very aggressively, and they're hoping to pass this new climate legislation that's part of the Build Back Better bill, which was going to have a big coastal resiliency component and a lot of renewable energy-related spend, I mean, almost uh, half a trillion dollars. So we're talking about big dollars, and that's why the stakes are so big, not just for the corporates who are going to gain uh, their, you know, their profits from it or the governments that will grow their economies uh, in the short term, but the world, which is going to have an impact in the medium to long term, which is not positive. And so if we think about where we need to restrict human activity um, to reduce the impacts of economic investment in uh, environmental sustainability, the Arctic is the poster child. Uh, so the resources are huge and not just oil and gas, but mineral resources, fisheries resources, and, and water resources, clean water, of course, being in short supply around the world. And there are major proposals to not just move icebergs out of the Arctic to places where the water is needed, uh, but there are other, other initiatives underway uh, to do things like, you know, mining uh, the fresh water of the Arctic region in, in, in ways that aren't particularly going to be positive for anybody except the company that wants to propose it. So I'm, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about the economic activity in the region, one part of which is cargo flows. Uh, I, I want to understand a little bit better uh, the you, you mentioned the conversation with Putin and Biden, and um, you mentioned that you bet that uh, the conversation in the Arctic did not come up. But I, I do find that interesting because I kind I, I intuit that the Arctic is very high up on the priorities of uh, Russia at this time. And of course, you talked oh, about huge, China, huge. how China is 
uh, declaiming itself to be a near Arctic power, posi- positioning itself very deliberately. And uh, it seems just I, I get the vibe that Russia and China are aligning here um, in some sort of geopolitical way. Is that correct? Could you explain a little bit about how those two nations in particular uh, could work together potentially to uh, control the Arctic or at least part of the Arctic? Yeah, absolutely a question that I'm asking as well. Uh, So the Russia-China trade corridor um, with the North Sea route being the the most important component of that, now that that North Sea route is open as a result of melting ice, that Russia-China trade corridor is now the focus of a lot of intense concern, and that's not just in Beijing and in Moscow, but but in Europe and in the United States, because obviously we're looking at what they're doing together pretty closely. So the political and trade ties of those two giant countries are rising. They're expanding. And billions of dollars are being spent on the hard infrastructure that is required to have the Russia-China trade corridor expanded. Um, and that's only going to increase over time. So look at the current situation. There's a rising number of free trade agreements that China and Russia now are part of. And uh, that significant investment flowing into trade between the two is, uh, you know, the, what would I say, the fixation of both countries when they meet with each other, uh, because they really don't want to talk about uh, the military issues that don't necessarily lead to agreements between them, because they both, they both are competing for military influence, for instance, in the rest of Asia. So China's been a huge investor in the Russian Arctic economy. And that's not just, um, you know, we want to build a factory to process fish, uh, which they've done. And the fish flows back to China because fish is a primary protein in the, the Chinese diet. Um, and it's not just in the, the very, I, I almost call it hyperactive oil and gas sector in the Arctic region. They're looking at the shipping routes for cargo flows going from Asia to Europe and vice versa, and investing in not just the, what goes on the water, the, the boats, but what's on land, uh, the port facilities and the associated infrastructure. So um, Russia is designating you know, a free trade zone covering a big area, nearly 5 million square kilometers. Uh, They're offering tax benefits to investors and to Arctic residents because they want people to stay in the region, even as the climate changes. Um, And and sometimes climate change in the Arctic means uh, warmer weather, which you would think people would welcome, but actually uh, it makes makes their settlements uh, much less stable and their food supply much less certain. Um, and they've been streamlining, you know, administrative procedures and bureaucracies since the Russians are extremely good at bureaucracy. They know that they have to streamline those to keep people and companies coming to the Arctic. So what they want are Chinese investments in rail and road. The Russian investors need, according to the Russian government, to be part of that. And so they're often joint ventures, but the Chinese bring their financial capital and they often have the expertise to do the real projects on the ground because the Russians are not very good at building hardy infrastructure. Um, And so the tax incentives that the government is providing, which some think are really quite generous, are being offered for, you know, infrastructure projects, which 
is in the hundreds of billions of dollars to upgrade uh, Arctic ports is only one of the ones that's underway. So Putin adopted uh, about a year and a half ago um, a national strategy uh, that articulated what they want to do up to 2035, which is a pretty ambitious strategy. And they're really focused on some areas like the Murmansk region, um, because they see that as their kind of priority Arctic uh, location. But they're, they're focused on the Bering Sea as well and the Yamal Peninsula that I mentioned earlier, which is a part of Siberia. So bottom line is the Russians have really got their act together when it comes to exploiting the natural resources and their strategy to do it right is to get the Chinese to be their partners on both the, fun the funding as well as the operational equipment, infrastructure, engineering, construction operations, which the Russians are not very good at. And, um, you know, the Russians are being honest with themselves. They don't have the resources financially because their economy is uh, in the can. And they don't have the managerial and technical. They have great engineers, but the organizations that use the engineers are not very competent. So they need the Chinese on multiple levels. And, of course, they want to keep the West away. And the Chinese are not part of the West. So that's the Russian strategy. Wow. And, you know, if we don't respond, the Russians might get what they want. It sounds like a very powerful uh, duo uh, if they yeah. are they are that far down the road in not only uh, access to the Arctic, but also the investment and the technical expertise to operate there between Russia and China. I'm wondering, you know, we just completed COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, the International Conference on Climate Change, tens of thousands of people, world leaders from all across the globe. Uh, when you look at the outcome of COP26, and it's a very complicated set of agreements, and, and which I have not uh, digested by any means, but does COP26 or did COP26 address uh, the potential oil and gas exploitation of the Arctic? Is there a countervailing force of international pressure to attempt to limit uh, exploitation of oil and gas resources in the Arctic? Was that a topic at COP26 or did they miss that one? Well, it was a topic except, of course, in the final agreement. <laughs> so there was a lot of discussion around the table during the climate conference in Glasgow. Um, and in fact, um, an organization called Arctic Base Camp, you know, set up their Arctic Base Camp at COP26, where scientists um, and environmental activists and the native peoples of the region and others managed to, you know, articulate um, what the damage costs would be um, if the Arctic ice further reduces, if the tons of ice melted from the ice sheet uh, continue to melt. Um, you know, the, the, the various climate alarms uh, that Arctic experts have uh, been sounding have were heard uh, in various forums during the COP26 by different types of actors, including, you know, national governments who are not just Danes who have a concern about the future of Greenland or Finland or others. Mm -hmm. uh, and their pavilions, by the way, at COP26 had a lot of Arctic storytelling in the pavilions. But then the question is, you know, did it translate to meaningful containment of oil and gas or other mineral extractive activities 
in the Arctic? And the answer, unfortunately, is no. Oof. So missed that was that was that was a missed opportunity on a big scale, which is why I'm so nervous and why you hear that nervousness in my voice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it it you know, in listening to the story that you're telling about the interplay, the resources, et cetera, it, it is hard to find the thread of uh, of restraint or. Uh, a conservative approach to opening this region. It sounds like a free for all right now. Is that a fair conclusion? I, I think, or, or, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And what worries me is that um, our, our new Secretary of Interior, who's a Native woman, um, Deb Holland, yep. she, you know, she has really articulated some great, um, you know, strategies to reduce the oil and gas activity on. Uh, government-owned land. Uh, however, there's been a significant ramp up in licensing by the Department of Interior for offshore oil and gas activity. Yes, um, and onshore, um, more than anybody expected the Biden-Harris administration to do. And I have to have to point the finger at them and say, yeah. that's not that's not the approach that we need right now. Now, there's fear in the administration because of rising oil and gas prices, um, and you know. Uh, the warm winter will hopefully reduce the hysteria that the Department of Interior and the Department of Energy and the White House have had about the supply. You know, they 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 obviously released a lot from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve yes. to try and reduce the the price pressures and uh, the inflationary pressures that the administration is still not getting its arms around. The bottom line is, since March, Deb has talked a good lot uh, since she was sworn in. Uh, but we need to see more action from the Secretary of Interior. And I would encourage people who are concerned about this to write to her because her staff is very sensitive since she was, you know, an elected representative in the Congress. Um, she's very sensitive to public opinion and her department does not want to be perceived as, uh, as a bad actor. So uh, my, my hope is that they'll, they'll slow and, and turn off the spigot on new, new permitting so that we can get our arms around some of what the environmental impacts are of already licensed and permitted operations, right. of which there's quite a lot in the Arctic. So I'm, 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 I'm in search of, uh, I'm in search of Gordon, a, a, an angle, uh, that is less, uh, you know, disastrous sounding here when it comes to exploitation of the Arctic region. Uh, and I'm wondering if, the U.S. security interest uh, plays a role in the position that the United States would take with respect to the China-Russia alliance on uh, exploitation in the Arctic. I mean, there's clearly national security concerns here for the United States, both in terms of economic power, access to resources, but also regional power. Um, Absolutely. Is, I agree. Can, can you, is, how does the national security interest uh, of the United States fit into the discussion, or is it a driving force in our uh, development of policy, do you think? Yeah, it, it is. And I'll say that the October 2021 report, the National Intelligence Estimate that was released um, to uh, the National Security Council, a portion of which was publicly released, you know, does sound the alarm on the national security implications of change in the Arctic, uh, climate change induced uh, transformation of the Arctic. And um, I think that you're, you're absolutely spot on when you say that, you know, the security angle is the one that might prompt positive action. And I, I hear from people in the Pentagon 
uh, not just in the Joint Chiefs Office, which is sort of leading the charge, but in uh, many of the different services. The Department of Navy, um, you know, being one that you would expect is enthusiastic about having a new field of operation that's unobstructed by ICE. They're not particularly enthusiastic, um, and they're they're talking about global agreements to demilitarize the Arctic because they see the Arctic as a no-win for everybody. Um, and, you know, there are certainly voices in the Navy that want a bigger footprint by the Navy to militarize the Arctic and ensure that we have, you know, battle-ready capacity to fight off a competitor in a military uh, conflict. Uh, but there are, I think, more reasonable voices in the Pentagon that are louder around um, the Secretary's office and in the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs office who are arguing that, you know, we ought to think about a global demilitarization the way that we have done in the Antarctic. And the Antarctic agreements have really worked. And there's no reason in the world why if it works at the bottom, it can't work at the top of the world. I don't know. I, if It seems to me as though the, the opportunities to exploit and the proximity to uh, North America, Europe, and Asia, and the economic powerhouses up in the northern hemisphere make the Arctic just a much and and also the timing of it. This is emerging now. And Gordon, I, I have to say, it seems like I, what I want to talk to you about a little bit is just kind of globalism uh, broadly here, zooming way out. Um, you know, you started off in high school going to Europe. Uh, you obviously took an early interest in international government and governance and how we as human beings can kind of sort out these conflicts and find find win-win type of solutions. And that's a government function, largely. I realize that you're talking about in the modern era, we have to bring corporations in. They're global. They, they work with all sorts of nations and as do NGOs. But um, the role of government here to to wrestle this problem down and say, no, there is a clear public interest that goes beyond any particular nation state here seems to be beyond anything that we have in our repertoire at this moment. That's my opinion. But I would, I would like to get your thoughts on this. Is, is globalism, uh, is it taking us into a new era of, of global government or, uh, and, and is, is there a way to even have a sustainable uh, global economy the way it's currently constructed? That's the other thing that I'm taking away from COP is that, uh, you know, the Arctic fell off the, the radar. Uh, there were a lot of other issues on the radar that sucked up and, and, and I believe probably rightfully so in, in, in 99 percent of the cases, I think rightfully so sucked up a lot of the attention. Um, but it seems like we, we, we lack focus. We lack the institutional power and structure uh, to, to figure this out. And I would just love to get your thoughts on that. For a lot of people, of course, globalism uh, and globalization are nasty words. They think of it as globaloni. And they don't want the U.S. to give up any of its sovereignty to any international institutions. But the reality is we, we do it every day. So when planes from outside the U.S. travel in the U.S. or vice versa, you know, that's governed by international treaties. 
Uh, the same with our boats traveling in international waters or foreign waters, again, governed by international treaties. When we send mail outside the U.S. or receive mail from outside the U.S., again, international treaties. When any of our companies import or export, all governed by international treaties, world trade agreements being only one type. When we do weather, uh, the World Meteorological Organization has international agreements in place. When we do a phone call outside the U.S., or we uh, have an internet connection to a website that's hosted outside the U.S. All of this stuff is governed by international treaties. There's no reason why the U.S. government um, has to cede uh, any of its authority that it doesn't want to cede to international agencies. But the way that globalization is transforming now is that it's embedded in the economy. We're, we can't decouple from the global economy, especially the United States, which is one of the most global econ globalized economies in the world. Um, but the reality, and, and you know, just selling treasuries to finance the U.S. debt depends on foreign buyers who are operating in the global financial system, and we get very, very low uh, interest rate borrowing uh, precisely because we're tied to the global financial system and the U.S. dollar is the, the dominant currency in the U.S. financial system, and we benefit from that. So there's no way to decouple, uh, but can we get more benefits from globalization? Absolutely. Will the Biden-Harris team be focused on that? Certainly because of the way that the global pandemic has forced us to uh, pay attention to global processes outside the U.S., Southern Africa, of course, being the focus right now this week and last week with the new variant coming from there. But the bottom line is, um, you know, we are tied to and leaders of the global system. And if we have the capacity, which we do, to lead which we are in some places, uh, we can do that around the Arctic. There is a lot of leverage that we have and goodwill that we have, and not just in the European Union um, and with associated Western powers like Japan and Korea who are active in that region, but we have leverage with China. They're our largest customer. We're, our, we're their largest customer. They're our largest lender. Uh, they 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 buy more treasuries than anybody else, and their their economy depends on our success and vice versa. So there's the potential for us to harness all of that good vibe, good energy, good activity, good opportunity to do something meaningful for our children and our grandchildren and the rest of the future generations to come. Mm -hmm. But is the political will there on any of the sides? Not at the level that's needed. It's almost there. I can feel the potential, and I can even feel that potential political will for positive change in the corporate world, but the leadership has to be there. I don't think the Biden-Harris team have really focused on the Arctic in any meaningful way. Now might be a, the right time to do that during the winter months when we're going to see the ice in the Arctic be much less than it was the year before and all the years prior to that. And with a warm winter, uh, that's going to maybe focus our minds in a way that hasn't been focused like it should have been in the last few years. Well, I, I think that was the question I was going to ask is, is what what combination of events or circumstances would drive us to uh, find the political will and the continuity of policy administration to administration to handle uh, a long-term multifaceted complex problem like management of this region. Yep. And maybe it is that the circumstances simply have to get worse in terms of the implications of, of climate change. And, 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 
you know, reality, as I like to say, is a persistent teacher. Uh, when bad things start happening, people tend to get more serious as the consequences ramp up. Um, are you are you uh, are you optimistic uh, about the potential U.S. leadership here? I know that it's so far the assessment is Biden Harris haven't really put this in the in the center of their policy uh, development process, but. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you expect to see in the remaining years of the Biden-Harris administration, or is it clear I do, at all? I, I, you know, my crystal ball is a bit foggy. Yeah, okay. Um, and so uh, I, I'll say what I what I expect in the if I draw a straight line projection from where we are to the end of the current Biden-Harris administration in <clears throat> January of 2025, when when the you know, the new president or the renewed president uh, is sworn in. So let's let's just say if I did a straight line projection business as usual scenario, um, I'm really pessimistic because I don't see the attention at the interagency level in the White House to listen to what the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense and others are saying in the administration about the need to demilitarize and to change the strategy that everybody adopts in the Arctic. So my hope is that we don't have a we don't have a business as usual scenario with a straight line projection from here to to the January 21st of the new administration. I'm optimistic slightly because I think the public education around this is not just oh my god what's happening to the people of Alaska uh, which is a very slow motion disaster that's underway where ecosystems and human systems and physical systems are all changing really rapidly and having adverse effects on on everybody indigenous communities and not so slow motion disasters are not as good in mobilizing will as fast disasters 9-11 resulted in a lot of very rapid changes in the government some of which were great and some of which were not so great we could have a comparable you know, sort of system-wide response like we did after 9-11, a disaster that, you know, happened in a very, very fast, it was a matter of hours from the point at which the first airplane hit uh, the first target to the point at which the towers came down. So this is not a matter of hours, it's a matter of decades that we're going to be seeing. But there may be a quicker response than usual to slow motion disasters because I believe more corporates are involved now in thinking about what their role should be. For instance, do they want their goods flowing through the Arctic region? Um, And they're starting to rethink their supply chain and their supply routes accordingly. And I know there are companies not just here in Silicon Valley, but around the world who are thinking about it. Hmm. I think Maersk in Denmark at their headquarters is thinking about this very aggressively and they have environmental sustainability initiatives that they're exposed to these ideas through. So I am optimistic that we won't get a business as usual straight line projection from here to there, but we'll get a breakthrough, a potential breakthrough where it's not just muddled through. And that that could happen if more of the actors are engaged in the conversation. Uh, at the minimum that Biden-Harris team needs to do is convene an Arctic summit in the White House for some of the key actors to be around the table and put the spotlight on this. That's the least that I call them to do. Love that idea. Uh, you got to put it on the agenda. You have to get the focus uh, of the power infrastructure to, to respond to the problem. Uh, 
Gordon, I really appreciated your insights in this broad ranging and fascinating discussion. If people want to follow your work, uh, what would, where can they, where can they keep track of your thoughts and uh, initiatives on these topics? Yeah. Twitter, Gordon Feller, one word, G-O-R-D-O-N-F-E-L-L-E-R. I do, I do try to post there about the work I'm doing. Uh, LinkedIn, the same. Uh, certainly an email to me, Gordon at GordonFeller.com. Certainly because I'm active with some of the nonprofits that we've talked about, like Meeting of the Minds, which has some really super programs for leaders um, that your readers might, that your listeners might want to know about. Um, I think any of those are good places, but I'm always reachable via email, via LinkedIn, via Twitter. So feel free to ping me and I do respond really fast. I pride myself on being quick on the, quick on the draw. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Gordon Feller. He is an executive advisor to companies and governments around the world, an NGO advisor, a prolific journalist as well, and a, and a thought leader on some of the biggest international issues that we're facing uh, uh, as a community of human beings. And so, Gordon, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to the listeners on the American Shoreline Podcast. We really appreciate your time. Thanks to you both. Really enjoyed it. Hope to talk further as time progresses. Absolutely. I think this is the kind of conversation that does need an update. We look forward to having you back on again.